All right, good morning, good to see you guys. Why don't you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. I'll give you a second to get there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. If you want a Bible, a hard copy, there's some right in the back if you walk through those doors. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Let me pray for us one more time. Yeah, King Jesus, we pray that you would uh, teach us and transform us today. We, we don't want our minds to simply be informed. We want you to, we want to be transformed. We actually want to look more like Christ. We can't do that on our own. And so we, we pray that you, by the power of your spirit, would sanctify, chip away at the rough edges. Help us to learn to live and love more like you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So I've got a two-year-old, and so every night when I put her down for sleep, Eliana, we read a book. And one of the books we read is called Holy Week, and it walks through the last week of Jesus' life, and then every page teaches an emotion. So, you know, the first page is Jesus riding into Jerusalem, and the word is excited. Everybody's excited because Jesus is coming into town. You flip a page or two, and the word is love. And Jesus loved his disciples, so he washed their feet. So I always have to pause and say, well, Eliana, you know love is not just a feeling. It's actually something you choose to do, even when you don't feel it. But she's two, so right over her head. She's not, she's not there yet. Near the end of the book, it's the resurrection, which is surprise. Jesus is, has risen, and then the final page is joy. As Jesus and his disciples are together again, they experience joy. And lots of moments in the Christian life feel like these kind of experiences. They're exciting. They're surprisingly good. They're joy-filled. Right? We could each stand up. We could start in the back, work our way all to the front. We could all talk about exciting, wonderful, joy-filled moments that we've had in the Christian life. Times of worshiping with brothers and sisters, eating good meals and talking about God with our friends, all sorts of stuff we could talk about. But those are not the only kinds of experiences we have as Christians. And in the, in the middle of this book, if you, you know, flip back a few pages from the end, it's the crucifixion. And then the next page is Jesus in the tomb. And the word there is, is sad. And our lives are full of lots of hard moments as well. All sorts of hardship. Sad, painful, confusing hard moments. And again, we could start in the back and work our way up to the front and we could stand up one by one and talk about all the hard things that we've faced or the hard things that we are facing now. And I actually want to invite you right now to think about how are you currently experiencing hardship? What's something hard you're facing or something painful or something confusing? Something anxiety producing? I want you to think about that and I want you to grab hold of that as we're talking about as I'm teaching today, because the text is going to speak to us in that place. And, you know, I don't know what it is. It could be relational. Maybe you've been hurt by somebody you really love, or there's conflict in a relationship, strain in a relationship where there was never conflict before. Or maybe you're watching somebody you love, a friend, a grandchild, a child, walk down a path that you know leads to destruction. 
and it hurts you. Or there's somebody that you're sharing the gospel with and their heart is just unmoved and you grieve that. Or maybe you've lost somebody and death has visited your life. Maybe it's not relational, maybe it's emotional. Maybe you're navigating depression and you just feel like you're being pulled under the water. And it's just, it's hard to get up in the day, in the morning. Or maybe it's not depression, it's just anxiety. You're riddled with anxiety, overwhelmed by the amount of things you have to do or there's just that one thing that looms. You wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it, stressed by it. Or maybe there's lies that live in the back of your mind and whisper to you. And so, you know, no matter how much you come here and people tell you God loves you, the little lie whispers, yeah, but not you. And you just feel afflicted by that. Or maybe it's fiscal, you can't get a job, but there's not enough money, or it's spiritual, you feel like the world's falling apart around you and you feel like God's nowhere to be seen. Maybe you feel like you're being opposed or mistreated. I don't know what it is for you, but I want you to hold that. I want you to think about that. And I want you to carry that with you for the next 30 minutes or so. And I'm gonna trust that God wants to communicate to you in light of that. And so the question we're gonna ask is, Oh, that, that's the question we're gonna ask. We're gonna ask, how do we minister faithfully in the midst of hardship? How do we minister faithfully in the midst of hardship? Because honestly, sometimes when life gets really hard, whether it's we're overwhelmed by anxiety, we feel like we're being mistreated, whatever it is, sometimes we just kinda wanna tap out. We wanna crawl into bed, turn on Netflix, numb the pain, and just sort of pause all this Christian stuff. But of course, as disciples of Jesus, we're not given that permission. We're called to continue to faithfully minister and worship God even when life is excruciatingly painful. And so we need to wrestle with this question, how do we do that? Before we dive into our text, I just wanna give us a little bit of context. Um, you know, sometimes when you open the Bible and you, you start reading in the middle of a chapter, or really anywhere, sometimes you're, you're catching the author mid-thought. And so we just need to orient ourselves to what's been said already. It'd be like, you know, if you opened up I don't know, Lord of the Rings to chapter seven and start reading halfway through the chapter, it might feel confusing. And so let me just give you a little bit of context that will also help unpack this question. Um, what's, what's happening, we've, we've been talking about this most weeks, but what's been happening in Corinth and the reason Paul writes this letter is that false teachers have come into the church and they, they're these charismatic, impressive looking people. And the Corinthians... They've started to distrust Paul. Paul's like their pastor, but they've started to distrust Paul and they're feeling tempted to follow these other people. Paul calls them super apostles because they make themselves look so good. And so what Paul is doing in the first chapters of 2 Corinthians is, is, is he's defending his ministry. And so we see him over and over and over again in the first few chapters, he talks about his ministry. He describes it in lots of different ways. He talks about the ministry of the new covenant, the ministry of the spirit, the ministry of righteousness, the ministry of reconciliation. Paul is describing his ministry in all these different, with all this different language. But what he's saying is God gave us this ministry. It's not because we're awesome. We're not super apostles. We're not really that impressive, but God entrusted us this ministry and he empowers us. But we still need to wrestle through what, what does it mean to, do, to, to be a minister, to carry this ministry? Because we actually share this ministry with Paul. So I'm just gonna basically quote Scott from last week. If you were here, Scott said, there's two parts to our ministry. We preach the undiluted gospel and then we back that up with actions and we mirror Christ. And so when we think about this ministry that we're called to fulfill, even in hardship, what we're doing is we're proclaiming Christ and we're mirroring Christ. So that if somebody looks at you or they look at me, they would see Christ and hear about Christ. That's what's supposed to happen. 
People see Christ in us. But again, the Corinthians, they're looking at Paul and they, they look at him and they think, he's not that impressive. He's not that charismatic and he suffers a lot. Is that really what Jesus would look like? Is that really what Jesus would want for us? Because look at these guys over here. They're charismatic, impressive. They make life look good. And what Paul is gonna say is, no, my hardship is not an indictment against me. And actually, if you train your eyes and you look closely, you'll see Christ in my suffering. So as Christians, we, God doesn't pull hardship out of our life. Instead, what he does is he breathes meaning into our hardship and he promises to be with us so that our hardship is not pointless. There's purpose in it. And that's what Paul's gonna try to help them see because if they reject Paul because he suffered, what are they gonna do with Jesus who suffered? So here's where we'll pick up. We'll actually pick up in verse six. This is what the last verse that Scott taught us, but this will help orient us again. So Paul says, for God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give light, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul reaches back to Genesis and he pulls this phrase about God creating light. And he says, remember that miracle that God did at the beginning of creation when there was just darkness and then he spoke and light appeared? God has done that kind of miracle in our, in our hearts now. There was darkness and then he miraculously illuminated our hearts so that we would see and know the truth. And so then he says, he gave us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So it's in Christ Jesus that we see and know God's goodness and his glory. And Paul's saying, we've seen it. We've seen Jesus, we know God's glory, we know God's goodness. And really what he's saying is we know the truth now. We know the gospel. Okay, so he's saying we have this great treasure. We've been given this great treasure. Now, Paul's trying to convince these Corinthians, you guys should trust me, not those guys. Now here's, here's the American way to do this. If Paul was an American, you lead with all your strengths. You wrap it up in pseudo humility, but you still lead with all your strength. It's like you go into a job interview and nobody ever goes into a job interview and is like, hey, before we get started, I just wanna let you know, I got fired two weeks ago and here are the three reasons I got fired. Nobody does that. We lead with all our strengths and even if people ask about our weaknesses, we make them into strengths. So if Paul was an American, you know, he'd say, hey, God's given us this great, impressive gift, and we have this great, impressive ministry. Do you know how many churches I've planted? And I know those guys look impressive, and my church plants, they're not huge, but if you count how all the people in all the different church plants, my following's actually bigger than their following. And I've got tight theology. Like, you're not really gonna ask a question that's gonna stump me. And I know, you know, my weaknesses. Yeah, my weaknesses, I just, I try too hard, I care too much, and... <laughs> Sometimes I don't, I, I don't sleep enough because I stay up late praying, so I'm working on these things. Right? That's, that's the kind of stuff we do. This is not what Paul does. So I want us to hear how counterintuitive, countercultural, and even sort of personally offensive this will feel to our own heart, what Paul's about to say. So even just look at the first word. He, in, in verse seven, he said, we got this great, treasure, this, this great gift has been entrusted to us. Verse seven, but... I feel like it should be and. We got this great gift and we're really great ministers. Instead he says, but. So we already know the flow of logic is about to shift. But we have this treasure. That's the gospel, the truth. We have this treasure in jars of clay. That's supposed to, I think, be like this oof moment. It's not really to us because we don't use jars of clay for anything. Potting maybe. Um, what Paul is doing, though, is he is highlighting his weakness. A jar of clay, at this time, it is ordinary, 
It is unimpressive. It is fragile. It is frail. If you break a, a, a jar of clay, no big deal. You just go get another one. It's replaceable. Paul's highlighting his weakness. He's not saying, look at all my strengths. He's saying, we've been given this message and actually we're, we're weak, frail, unimpressive people. We're ordinary. And there's something that just, something in my heart doesn't like that. I feel like, no, I, I wanna be impressive. But actually there's another part of my heart that can hear that as relief. Oh, if I don't have to be impressive, if I don't have to be powerful, that's relieving. Maybe an equivalent would be like Paul saying, we don't carry this gospel message in a new Tesla. It's like a, we're like 1988 Honda Civics. We're clunky, we're breaking down. When we hit the hill, it's hard. It's really hard, right? That's what he's saying. We're, we're those kinds of people. We're not powerful, charismatic, impressive people. And here's why it matters. This is actually really important. Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Because if Paul marches around and pretends like I'm self-reliant, I'm independent, I'm strong, I know how to preach, I know what to do, I know the words that would unlock people's hearts so they would receive Christ, I can handle anything, nothing gets to me. Who's he pointing to? Himself. But as he embraces weakness and admits weakness, as he embraces human frailty and our finite nature, our inability to accomplish what God calls us to unless God empowers us, then what Paul is doing is he's pointing to God. God's power is revealed. And so the first thing we learn as we think about this question of how do we minister in the midst of hardship, this is incredibly counterintuitive, is we actually admit and embrace our weakness. We don't pretend to be self-reliant. Because once we admit and embrace our weakness, now we're pointing to God. Now God's power can be clearly revealed through us. I think of Paul in this language, I think of him like this man made of clay who has been broken and glued together, like held together by divine glue. And he's walking through the, light, the, the world like that. And so when people look at him, it's like, how could you keep going? Why would you keep preaching? And it's clearly God holding him together and sustaining him. And this is basically what he says next. He gives some examples of, his life and the hardships that he's experienced. So look at verse eight. He says, we are afflicted in every way. And it really is every way. If you go read in chapter 11, maybe it's 12, Paul lists all the ways he suffered. And some of it is persecution. He's been beaten and whipped because of his faith. But it's all sorts of stuff. He talks about being shipwrecked three times, which feels ridiculous. That's just the weather. Like the weather has made my life hard. He talks about long like journeys. Paul walks, I don't know how many miles on all his journeys and his body is tired. He talks about the psychological toil and toll of caring for churches, and that weighs on him. All you parents, if you feel for your children, Paul gets that. That's all part of the affliction. Paul says, we've been afflicted in every way, but then God's divine power, the divine glue kicks in, and he says, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, Paul gets confused, he doesn't always know what to do, but not driven to despair, we're persecuted, but not forsaken, we're struck down, that means like bullied or laid flat, but we're not destroyed, God's power is sustaining him. And then look at this, this is astounding. He's gonna use this word manifest twice in the next two verses, they're very repetitive, these two verses, so Paul's trying to reiterate something. And he's gonna say, we manifest Christ. And again, this is back to our original idea that people look at us and they see Jesus. But I want you to hear how people are gonna see Christ in us. He says, we, 
always carrying in the body, in our body, the death of Jesus. We carry Jesus' death in our body so that the life of Jesus may be made manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death, suffering, hardship, for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be made manifest in our mortal flesh. And so what Paul begins to allude to here is that you and I, when we suffer, we actually, we reiterate and rehearse the crucifixion over and over and over again for people to see. Because think about what happens at the crucifixion. God, Jesus, he embraces human frailty on the cross. He endures human suffering faithfully. This is, with, this is Jesus when he looks his weakest. There are moments in Jesus' life where he looks powerful. He does incredible things. But this is the moment where he looks defeated, he looks laid low, he looks weak, hanging on a cross. People taunt him, they spit on him. And yet this is the moment when God's power is revealed more than ever before in human history. It is this moment of seeming weakness, real weakness, where God's power is unleashed. And Paul is saying the same kind of thing is now happening in our life, that as you suffer and you're faithful, God's power can be unleashed into your world. And people see the resurrection power, the abundant life that is found in Jesus. And so this is why it matters that we don't hide and pretend like we're not hurting. It's why it matters that we don't pretend we're self-reliant, that we freely admit our frailty, our inability, our weakness, because then we're being like Jesus on the cross, and then God's power can shine forth. And notice in verse six, he says, the place we saw the glory of God, it was the face of Jesus, and now it's you and me who manifest Jesus. And so as you admit weakness, as you admit, I, I don't know how to handle this. This is so hard. I don't know how to make this decision. I need God's help. And as you keep walking with Jesus in that, suffering, hurting, confused, but as you keep doing that faithfully, people around you, for a glimpse, just for a moment, they might see the, the face of Jesus in your face. They see God's glory in your life, and their heart is turned to you. So let me try to illustrate this for you. He's saying something like, when we admit our weakness, admit that we're finite, we become like a magnifying glass. We magnify God's power. The whole world can see it. They look at us and they see the divine glue sustaining us and holding us together. But as soon as we pretend to be self-reliant, we cover it. And we start to point to ourselves again. I'm strong, I can handle this. And I just want you to notice how much we want to be impressive. How much we want to come across as strong and hyper-competent and able. And Paul's freeing us up and inviting us and even commanding us to admit that we're not, we're finite. What this looks like in real life, if, if you're navigating depression, then when you wake up in the morning, day after day, even though it's grueling, but you keep waking up and you keep praising Jesus, then your friends who don't know Jesus ask, why would you keep praying Jesus, praising him when your life is like this? And he's not removing this hard thing. And you're like, Peter, and you just say, he has the words of life. Where else would I turn to? Where else could I go? And God's power radiates out of you. If you're doing ministry, you're trying to raise your children to love Jesus, or you're helping on the high school ministry, or the junior high ministry, or the children's ministry, and you feel like, I don't know how to help these kids love Jesus. I can't reach in and flip a switch that makes them. I wish I could. When we admit that, now we're in a place where 
we can depend on God's and God's power can flow through us. The dangerous place is when we start to think, oh, we gotta go share the gospel with this person. I know, what, I know just what to say. I've taken these classes. I know exactly what to say that would unlock their heart. Now we're depending on ourselves, and we're pointing to ourselves. As we embrace weakness, as counterintuitive as it is, God's power is revealed. So what this means for us is that we stop pretending that we're stronger than we are. It means we go to our Bible studies and our life groups and we talk about not just, you know, the surface thing, but the real thing, how our marriage is doing, how our soul is doing, the sin that we're struggling with. We're freed up because Jesus has forgiven us of sin. We can talk about that. Paul here, the apostle Paul is saying, I'm weak. So of course we can do that too. There's a danger in the evangelical church that we would come to church and plaster on a smile, pretend we're strong, and we never talk about our sin, even though to become a Christian, we raised our hand and said we're sinful. But that's not the vision of Scripture. The vision of Scripture is that we're free to be honest and talk about these things. And this isn't, I'm a millennial, millennials love authenticity, but this isn't about authenticity, this is about reality. It's just about living in reality. And this is the reality of our soul. So this is the first thing Paul says. We embrace weakness. Now Paul's gonna help us understand how do we endure in this? Because I hear that and I already feel tired. Like, oh, that sounds hard to embrace and admit my weakness. So now he's gonna help us understand how could we endure, keep preaching, keep mirroring Christ, keep being faithful, even when life feels real hard. And what he's gonna talk about is hope. He's gonna say that your future hope helps you to endure present pain. And so he gets very specific. He says, I hope in the resurrection. I ho- my hope is that I will have a resurrected body one day. Not in the alleviation of pain or earthly comfort. So look at verse 13 with me. He says, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. So what he's doing there when he, he quotes the I believed I, and so I spoke, he's quoting a psalmist and the psalmist is actually talking about affliction in context. Paul's, I think, hoping we kind of infer that. The psalmist is basically saying, I'm afflicted, but I keep believing and I keep speaking. And Paul is saying, I'm like that guy. We're like that guy. We're afflicted, but we keep believing, trusting, and so we keep speaking and preaching. And then look at what his hope is. Look at what he knows. He's convinced. This is the future thing he's longing for. Verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So he says two things. My hope is that I will be resurrected one day, I'll have a resurrected body, and I will be walking around in that resurrected body in the presence of God. We're walking around with Jesus. That's his hope. It's not money, it's not the end of pain, it's not a big house, it's not owning a Tesla, it's not a new pair of sneakers, it's not getting done with homework. His hope is one day I will have a new body and live in a reality unmarred by sin and I will walk around with Jesus. And that's what helps me endure and keep preaching. And he, he says he's hoping that this will help the gospel go out more and more. Verse 15, for it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. He wants more and more people to know Jesus. That's why he keeps preaching. So I just want us to remember and be reminded of what our Christian hope is because I feel like it's very hard for me to keep my eyes fixed on the prize that Jesus offers us. 
he says very specifically, it's resurrection body and being with Christ. Um, heaven is not just this ethereal place where we will float around in clouds. The vision, you see this clearly in Revelation, is that God will recreate the earth and we will get new physical bodies and we will walk around in those physical bodies on a physical place and God will be there and Jesus will be there in his body. This is a place where there's no sin, there's no depression, there's, there's no sadness, there's no tears, there's no death. You could think of all the wonderful, exciting moments of life, these little glimpses of heaven where you're feasting with friends and, and worshiping God or, or whatever it is for you, you're out in nature and you just feel like this is incredible and you magnify and multiply those things by thousands, that's what heaven is. It's this incredible place where we really live with physical bodies for eternity. And Paul's saying, that's my hope. And because I keep my eyes fixed on that hope, I can always take one more step, even when life is hard. I can take one more step, and today I can preach. Even though people didn't respond well yesterday, Paul's gonna keep preaching. And even though this feels grueling, I have this hope that I'm, I'm, I'm dreaming of, I'm longing for, and so I can take one more step. I was reading a book a few months ago about a young man who, uh, a young Jewish man who was in Auschwitz, and um, he describes his experience near the end of the war where the Allied forces are breaking through all the German lines and defenses and they're getting closer and closer and so the Nazi troops round up all the Jewish men and women and children and they start marching them. A lot of us have, are familiar with this, they march them, it's this death march. And he's this young man and he describes this experience of hearing the artillery in the background. And I don't remember exactly how he words it. I don't remember if he words this specifically or this is just what I was thinking of when I was reading it, but my mind began to think of this idea that it's like he's communicating, I can take one more step because he hears the artillery and he has this hope. If I can make it through this night, maybe I'll be freed. This is grueling. This is unfathomably hard. But I can take one more step. I can take one more step. I can take one more step. And Paul's saying something like that. He's saying, yes, our life is hard. At times, it's brutal. In chapter one, he says, we've been afflicted beyond all comparison. It's exceedingly hard at times, but we can always take one more step. We can preach one more time. We can try to be faithful one more day because we have this hope that one day it will come to an end and we'll be freed and saved and we will live with Jesus forever in new resurrected bodies. That's his hope. So this, it raises the question. What are you hoping in? What have you placed your ultimate hope in? What do you think will give you abundant life? And we all know the Jesus theological answer, but what I want you to do is actually look at your life and think about what am I actually in reality chasing as my ultimate hope? And I think this is an incredibly important thing for us to consider because I, I think it's very easy for us to misplace our hopes and to do that without even realizing it. We might place our hope in materialism. I, I think a lot of our high schoolers, they're hearing this message that you need to get good grades so you can get into a good college, so you can get a good job, so you can make good money, so you can have a good retirement. But that's just the American dream wrapped up in Christian wrapping paper being packaged for our children. That's not the hope of scripture. That is not what Christ has called us to hope in. Right now, it's easy to get swept up into the pursuit and the idolization of political power, thinking if we could just get more political power, then the kingdom would come. That's what we have to do. That's the ultimate. That's the most important thing, and we're banking on it. But that's not the ultimate. Those things have their place. I want to make enough money to take care of my children. 
There's a place to care deeply about politics. But these are not the ultimate. Comfort. We're so prone to idolize and chase comfort, to sidestep hardship, to maintain the ease that's in our heart. And yet that, as, as we misplace our hope and comfort, we will misstep. I think it's really important for us in this moment as Christians to realign our hope and to remember that my hope at the end of the day, these things have their place, but at the end of the day, my ultimate hope is that one day I will live in heaven in a resurrected body with Jesus forever. That's my hope. And I wanna live my life today in light of that and one of the things that means is I can keep taking another step even though it's hard. And what also happens as we hope in Jesus and our resurrected bodies and being with him is that Hope is a kind of proclamation because whatever you hope in, we hold that to the world and we say, this is worth treasuring. And as Christians, we hold up Christ and being with him again one day. And we hold this up and say, this is what's most important. This is what I treasure. Not money, not success, not my reputation. Those things have their place, but this is what I treasure above all else. And as we hope, it doesn't just help us endure, it also proclaims something. So Paul will give us one more piece of advice as we go through hard things. One more way that we can continue to minister and proclaim Christ and mere Christ. And here's what he says. Verse 16. This is sort of a bridge. So he says, so we do not lose heart, right? Just reiterating. We have this hope, the resurrection, that helps us to endure. And now he's gonna talk about our, our focus, the things we focus on. So he says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so what Paul does in this last section is he, he sort of compares all these different ideas, and there are two ways of focusing. And on the one side... We have the outer self that is wasting away. We have light momentary affliction. We have things that are seen but actually are transient. And on the other hand, these are the things that Jesus teaches us to prioritize and value. We have the inner self that's being renewed. We have this weighty eternal glory that's coming. And we have unseen things that are eternal. Now, what Paul's not doing is saying that your physical body and the things that happen in the physical world are unimportant. He's not saying that. They're exceedingly important. They're very important. But what he's saying is my physical body, like my outer self, my physical body, my reputation, my image, all that stuff, it's, it's fleeting. It's fading. My physical body, from the time I stood up and started teaching, it's, it's faded just a little bit. And what he's saying is there's another life, my life that is hidden with Christ, that that's being renewed. So even as my, my physical, this is such a cool idea that even as our physical bodies wear out, our spirits can become more and more alive, more in love with Jesus. At the bottom, he talks about these seen things that are transient. Again, he's not saying that these things have no place, they're all unimportant, but the money we chase or the, the our reputation status, all these things, they're, they're seen, the whole world sees them and knows them, but again, they're transient. They're not gonna last forever. And instead, Paul has fixed his eyes on these things that are unseen but eternal, like the proclamation of the gospel that could lead to salvation that would rattle into eternity or becoming more like Jesus, which is like training for heaven. He's saying these are the things we're, we're focused on. These are the things we're fixed on. And right in the middle, he has this line where he says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
Now, I don't think Paul is dismissing the hardship of hard. He's not saying hard things aren't hard. In fact, at the end of that phrase, he says that this eternal weight of glory is beyond all comparison. In chapter one, verse eight, he uses that same phrase, beyond all comparison, to describe his affliction, his hardship. So Paul is fine saying that hard things are hard. But what he is saying, he's he's not minimizing pain, he's magnifying the goodness of heaven and eternity. And what he's saying is once you shift your focus and you realize there's an eternity coming of goodness, it's not that the pain stops being painful, but it becomes a little bit lighter. It becomes a little bit more bearable. So let me try to illustrate this for us. I need a, Zach, you wanna help me? This is Zach. Zach, I want you to walk to the back of the room. No, you don't come up here, sorry. I just want you to walk down the aisle all the way to the back. Okay, I just want you to think, you've probably seen this before, I want you to think this is your life right here. This is your life, it is finite. And the rest of this yellow cord, this is eternity. We're gonna have Zach stop at the back of the wall so he can stay with us and keep listening. But in reality, this would just keep going forever. And Paul is basically saying something like this. He's saying, look at this. This life, it's fleeting. And you know, we could get a little sharpie and say, here's, here's Kyle's pain, this like pain thing I'm going through right now. It's a little line on there. And he's saying, look at eternity. And he's inviting us to prioritize and fixate on and value and chase and pursue the things that will rattle into eternity. Raising our children to love Jesus, not just raising them to get good jobs. Telling our friends about Christ. Trying to become more and more like Christ in our own life. Putting our hope in heaven, because that's gonna be there forever. He's saying, look, your life, it is short, it is fleeting. Don't put all your hope here. Don't put all your hope here. Thanks, Zach. You can just leave it if you want. Or you can roll it up. So I I want us to think about, yeah, these last two ideas of hope and and shifting our focus. There's a real danger, I I feel this tug. There's a real danger in our culture because we have so much wealth and entertainment and comfort available to us maybe more than anybody in human history. There's a real danger that we would try to build a personal paradise this side of heaven for ourselves, rather than placing our hope in heaven and focusing on these eternal things. We fixate on this life and we think, man, if I could just, just save a little more money for retirement and get that home, go on that vacation, we're trying to build our own paradise. There's a lot of people in human history, it's easier to hope in heaven because their life is so hard. We have so much comfort available, which is a gift. We have to steward that and the danger is that we sort of fall asleep spiritually, lulled to sleep by all the comfort. And Paul here is, is waking us up to ultimate reality. Last week, Scott talked about uh, putting on VR goggles and living in the metaverse, right? There's these fantasy worlds that people go live in. And he was talking about the spiritual realm and saying we have to wake up and remember that's real. And you know, it, it might be easy for us to look at people putting on VR goggles and you know, if they're spending hours and hours doing that a day and feeling like, huh, Look at these people just wasting their life in this fantasy world. And then we turn over here and we live in our own fantasy world. Making decisions as if God is not real, living as if the demonic and angels are not real, living as if heaven and hell aren't real. And what Paul is saying is wake up. Focus on ultimate reality. 
There are these unseen things that will rattle into eternity. Prioritize those, focus on those, treasure on those. And so as we look at this, as we look at these three things, what we're doing is we're mirroring Christ to the world. This is basically the life of Jesus. We mirror and rehearse the crucifixion in the way we suffer. And then we hope in the resurrection. And we only hope in the resurrection because Jesus was resurrected. And then this last thing, this is like this kingdom perspective where we value these things that will rattle into eternity. And this is the way Jesus taught us to live. And so again, you and I, we stand in the world to mirror Christ and to proclaim Christ. And just to remind us again that in verse six, Paul says that people see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, and now people can look at you as you admit your hard things, the hard stuff, you admit your weakness. You endure faithfully, continuing to hope in heaven, focused on these things, and you are now mirroring Christ to the world. So to wrap up, we're gonna do something a little unique. We're gonna, we're gonna break the rules a little bit. Usually I talk, you sit there, that's it. I'm gonna have you guys talk to each other for a second. So what we're gonna do is um, we're gonna pray because I think it would be a shame for us as a church family to come in here and talk about how hard things are hard. We're free to admit that hard things are hard and we should depend on God in those hard things and then just walk out. And instead to practice this, to practice admitting our frailty, admitting how much we need God's power, what I'm gonna ask you to do is turn to one person around you or if you see someone lonely, you can be in a group of three. And I just want you to share what's one hard thing you're facing. It does not have to be the darkest, deepest, hard thing. It can be. You're free to, as we've talked about today. But you don't have to. I want you to share one hard thing that you're facing, and then I want you to pray for each other. I'm gonna give you five or six, seven minutes. Depends how long this sermon was. I don't know yet. Um, and then Nate will come up and lead us in worship. If you're in the midst of prayer that's really important or a conversation that's important, just keep praying and talking. That's fine but you're welcome to pause and join us in worship. And then if you need to pick the conversation up after, you can do that as well. I know this is uncomfortable for some of us. Um, I know some of you may be new and you feel like, why is this guy making me talk to people? It's because we think that the church is a family. This is not an event. This is a family. So families, we turn in, we talk and we share. So I'm gonna give you a few minutes to do that. Make sure there's no lone rangers around you. You can grab them if you see somebody. Spouses, you guys can think about if it's important for you to connect. It might be really important for you guys to talk and process. It might also be really important for you to each turn to a friend near you, and you can discern that together. So I'll pray for us in about five, six minutes and, and bring us back. Go. If you are in the middle of praying, maybe you just you can pause for a second, but you can continue to pray or talk uh, in a moment when we sing worship. That's a wonderful way to worship Jesus is to just keep praying to him. Um, some of you may have just jumped into really important conversations and you are free to continue those now. You can step outside if you need to or after the service and I would encourage you to do that. Um, Nate is gonna lead us in some worship so you're obviously invited to, to sing with us but again, if you're caught in the middle of prayer, um, feel free to continue that. Let me pray for us um, as we look forward to worshiping 
Father, we again just come and we admit that we are unable to accomplish all the things that you call us to accomplish. And we admit that life is hard and we admit that uh, we experience things that hurt. And we bring all that to you, trusting that you are a good father who loves us, that you are the God of all comfort, as Paul says at the beginning of 2 Corinthians, that you comfort us in all our afflictions so that we can comfort others. Lord, I pray that conversations that start here would continue if that's really important. That we would, as a church family, learn to do this kind of stuff more and more, just to talk about the real stuff going on and then pray for one another and trust that you really hear our prayers. And also right now, Lord, as we, um, as we sing, I pray that we would really pour out our heart to you and worship you because you are the God who sustains us, empowers us, loves us. Pray this in your name. Amen.